Okay, if we're going to recreate this old pic of us that mom posted, we've got to get the outfits right. Well, for some reason, I can't find gauchos with a matching shrug anywhere. Let me try on my Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. I just use the S Pen to circle the outfit in the post, and bam, five sites to buy it from right here. Shut up! How did you... You shut it. Mom's coming. Cute outfit. Get me one. (laughs) (laughs) Circle it, find it. With the new Galaxy S24 Ultra and circle the search with Google. Upgrade now at Samsung.com. Internet connection required. Results may vary based on visuals. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Lisa Monaco, who is nobody's fool and is a tough uh, prosecutor, uh, made it clear that if you don't have an effective ethics and compliance program, you're going to be held even more accountable. This is Tom Fox. In this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, I'm joined by Michael Volkoff, and we take a look at some of the key highlights in FCPA and compliance from 2021. Our topics include the three FCPA enforcement actions with WPP, Deutsche Bank, and Amec Foster Wheeler, Lisa Monaco's speech on FCPA enforcement, and the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption. I know you'll enjoy this 2021 wrap-up on all things FCPA. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Mike, I wanted to start this podcast by asking uh, you and I to maybe reflect on some of the top stories, events, or issues that we saw in 2021. And uh, I think uh, you've been at least thinking about this, maybe looking uh, to write about it. But in reviewing the 2021 year in compliance, Obviously, we had very few FCPA cases, but that really allowed me to focus on other issues, other speeches, uh, other items that that came up. So uh, I ended up concluding that this may be as significant a year as we've had in in quite some time. But I just wanted to, to kind of tick off the three FCPA cases because I thought they each had one message that I really think or hope compliance professionals will uh, take to heart going forward. In January, we had Deutsche Bank, and probably all you need to know is they're Donald Trump's bankers or were, uh, but they were a two-time FCPA recidivist, and they obviously had a culture that did not um, value compliance. And when we tie that a little bit later into the Lisa Monaco speech, I think culture is going to become a much more important factor for the Department of Justice. The second case was Amec Foster Wheeler. And this literally started with a high-end men's tailor shop in New York, and the screenplay for the fictional movie about this mm-hmm. only got better after that. But the thing that struck me about this case, Mike, was something we really we've touched on over the years. But this was the first case where someone, a company, tried to pull out of paying bribes, and the bribe receiver said, "Oh no, no, no." In fact, you're going to increase my bribe payments. So the the bottom line is once they got their hooks into you, they got their hooks into you. 
And if you pull out, well, they're going to pick up the phone and make a call, and they're going to be the first one in. So uh, once you cross that line, you're, you're sunk and you're hooked. And then we had WPP. And in this case, Mike, we had in um, one business unit, we had seven separate whistleblower reports from one whistleblower uh, before the company uh, took it seriously enough to retain uh, high-quality investigative counsel and uncover the bribery, fraud, and corruption. And if you get a whistleblower report in, I think the um, SEC has announced over $1 billion now in whistleblower payments made. <clears throat> and the AML Act of 2021, 2020 rather, created additional classes of whistleblowers for other U.S. government agencies. So we're going to see the U.S. government use whistleblowers, and we may see an explosion of whistleblower growth. I'm going to tie that into the uh, Biden administration strategy on countering corruption. So those really were the three key points I wanted to to raise from the FCPA cases. And uh, did you have any other angles on those cases? Well, those cases, I think, underscore uh, what I think is one of the more uh, important uh, underlying themes that you sort of hit on here Uh CCO and compliance operation backed by internal controls that require their approval or sign off on various uh, actions and the ability to go to the board directly, obviously. Uh, And what we see in all three of the cases you pointed out, Tom, was just a complete absence of a culture of compliance where a CCO was given resources, independence, autonomy, uh, and expected to do their job. And I think uh, Lisa Monaco is telling everybody, uh, you know, buckle up. Uh, This is going to get this is going to change. And we've already seen, I think, the beginning right at the end of the year. We had the NatWest National West uh, Bank enforcement actions. And there were two important things that were included in that. One was they appointed a compliance monitor, an independent compliance monitor, the first one in a few years. Uh, in, and totally justified. Uh, NatWest is actually the old Royal Bank of Scotland. And you can't change your name and change your spots and change your compliance history. And number two, they reviewed all of their, in their settlement papers, they reviewed all of their civil and criminal uh, enforcement history. Uh, it was put out there, and they took that into account in deciding to put in an independent compliance monitor and in deciding on the uh, total uh, penalty that was going to be paid. So that, to me, was important. Uh, I think the Justice Department has gotten tired of seeing situations where uh, people needed to respond to red flags or somebody tried to raise a red flag, uh, and that compliance doesn't have the authority that they should have to respond, retain the right people to do an investigation, and let the chips fall where they may. So uh, that's, the, that's the message that's coming from the Justice Department. And I think your point, overall point, Tom, of that this is really a setup for a big year and a big set of trends is absolutely correct because right now everything is lined up. 2022 is going to be an enforcement year like we've never seen before. I'm convinced of it, not just in FCPA, but I think across the board. So that brings us to the Lisa Monaco speech. And Mike, I drew three uh, key points, maybe four from that speech. Number one, uh, the reinstatement of the Yates memo, meaning companies now have to turn over all information 
around uh, about anyone who was involved in bribery and corruption, uh, not just those who uh, were higher on the chain or whether there was some question in their involvement. Number two, uh, rejection of the Benkowski memo uh, and how the DOJ will use monitors going forward, not in a punitive manner, but to extend their reach to, number one, make sure companies comply with the uh, agreements they've made, whether it be a DPA or NPA or some other settlement agreement. Number two, uh, to get companies to uh, for, for monitors to be used as an asset, so companies can have a more uh, effective com- best practices compliance program. And number three, to uh, act as a tripwire to hopefully prevent, uh, det- detect, and then prevent recidivism before it becomes a full blown second FCPA violation. Uh, but there's one other or a couple of other parts. She wrapped this around corporate culture. And you spoke to that in terms of NatWest. I spoke to it in terms of Deutsche Bank. And as part of the evaluation of corporations, she said that, as you noted, the DOJ will evaluate all your conduct, all your uh, settlements, all the enforcement actions against you, indeed all investigations. And the White Collar Bar in New York, they, they went crazy over this. And particularly in the uh, ACI National FCPA Conference, there was a lot of criticism, questions, and commentary from the white-collar defense bar that how unfair this was just because you had an environmental action five years ago doesn't mean that has any relevance to the uh, FCPA action. But I think, Mike, what they're missing is the point you just made. In the DOJ's mind, it's all about culture. If you've got a culture around environmental compliance and you're probably going to have a culture around anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance and anti-money laundering compliance and trade sanction compliance and anti-discrimination compliance, and that if you have the right culture in place, uh, it's going to be looked upon favorably by the Department of Justice. But if you've got a series of, well, we had some anti-competitive behavior, we had some environmental behavior, uh, yeah, we've had a few sexual harassment cases and maybe a sexual discrimination case, and uh, but those aren't tied together, and, and we're not a bad company. I, I think those days are, if not gone, uh, going out the window. And for me, the more I thought about the Monaco speech, that's the much bigger change, that <clears throat> the DOJ is going to look at your culture and how are you going to assess and measure and then document what you have done for your culture and I think this is going to make the job of the chief compliance officer uh, much more important going forward. I totally agree. And I think, you know, we're, we're, t- we're getting into what I call the era of accountability. And um, part of this, Tom, I think dovetails with what we talked about earlier with the ESG movement. Once we start to uh, make ESG a fundamental aspect of corporate operations that you have to have robust disclosure and you have to address in some way. What will go along with that is accountability. And I think the Justice Department is sensing uh, this need for accountability. And so, for example, you know, I disagree with the New York Bar. My only point would, would be with regard to other enforcement actions is, you know, how is it relevant to this enforcement action, and it could be through the culture. Uh, and so that means if, if you don't have your culture in line, you're first off not going to meet your ESG requirements for governance. 
And number two, and you'll be held accountable by the marketplace. And number two, the government is saying we are also going to hold you accountable for that. So you hit on the the proverbial uh, nail on uh, on the head here in terms of its culture, its culture, its culture. Um, and we'll see where this comes out. But look, how many times did you and I dissect an FCPA case and say, you know, this obviously reflects. Uh, some fundamental gap at the top, some fundamental gap with the board oversight, some fundamental gap with the culture of the company as set by the CEO or whatever. So I think this is all going to come back together, and uh, it's going to be interesting, uh, this sort of era of enforcement and accountability that's going to begin, I think, in 2022. Watch out. It's going to be a big, uh, a big year. We're going to have a quick message from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back with more from the FCPA Compliance Report. And Mike, at least for uh, my thoughts of 2021, I'd like to end with the Biden administration's strategy on countering corruption. And uh, many have panned it as uh, just so many words. You know, we've heard the government say we're against corruption before. But I thought there were three significant points that I think are going to drive the entire ABC effort going forward. Number one, uh, anti-corruption or the fight against corruption is now a national security issue in the United States. And that leads directly to number two, when an administration decides something's in the national security interest of the United States— the money spigot opens, and there's going to be resources thrown at this that you and I have never seen in our lifetime. <laughs> there's going to, and that's going to flow down from the government to the government contractors to the private sector, probably all the way down to people like you and me, because <clears throat> uh, the government's going to demand more technological solutions. The government's going to demand more innovation. Business as usual will not be sufficient. And so I think the resources, and I have no idea which way it's going to go or who's going to be the winner or losers out of this. I just know when the government says, you know, it's important to me, guess what? It gets important. And then really the last thing is, and you talked about accountability, uh, I think uh, the government particularly and specifically called out whistleblowers somewhat based upon the SEC experience, but it expanded out to whistleblowers across the globe and to protecting whistleblowers wherever they may be. In that group of whistleblowers, for the first time, I saw the government talk about journalists and protecting journalists. And so we had a great example of Francis Hagen, Hagen, uh, who was a whistleblower uh, involving Facebook. Uh, She went to the Wall Street Journal. And uh, then she was on 60 Minutes. And so before she testified before Congress, I assume she went to the SEC, an appropriate agency beforehand, but that's just an assumption. I don't know that. And so now we have whistleblowers going to the fourth estate, but we also have journalists breaking accountability stories, the Pandora Papers, the Paradise Papers, um, the Panama Papers. That was all journalists. Uh, And uh, I think we're going to see the government use information developed by journalists in a new and different way. And in your part of the world, I'm listening to uh, the Fat Leonard podcast. And uh, 
the guy who's doing the podcast is one of the two Wall Street Journal reporters who broke the 1MDB scandal. Uh, so this guy's well-versed uh, in bribery and corruption, and he's doing this, this scandal involving uh, Fat Leonard, who is involved in bribery and corruption with the U.S. Navy. Multiple U.S. Navy officers have pled guilty. There's a group of six who have resisted pleading guilty and are going to trial in 2022 in San Diego. So, uh, and this is the first time I've really seen a podcast break this this type of story because Fat Leonard has never told his story publicly. He's told it to prosecutors, uh, but not publicly. So I think we're going to see more stories like this, of Francis Hagen, uh, testimony and, and uh, taking uh, documents to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and you have to say, uh, whatever you think of the journal uh, politically, which is that they are very conservative, they are incredibly robust when it comes to business reporting and uh, one of the world's leaders in that area. So when someone like the Wall Street Journal uh, publishes whistleblower allegations with documentary evidence, uh, that gets noticed. And so I think we're going to see a lot more accountability, a lot more accountability from different sources, a lot of resources thrown at the problem of the international scourge of bribery and corruption. And the more I think about the Biden administration's statement on countering corruption, the more I think it's going to be a game changer in ways, frankly, we can't see right now, Mike. Well, let me uh, jump on one bandwagon here, uh, uh, several bandwagons. But, Tom, I, I don't know if you've listened to uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, put out a podcast on the Enron case uh, that was called Bad Bets, and it was really uh, fascinating. So San Diego, we have our, uh, we have our corruption out here. Uh, and then Houston, we had the Enron scandal and the story of the Wall Street Journal uh, breaking. It's, it's put out by the two um, uh, reporters who broke Enron in the Wall Street Journal. And that just goes to, I mean, it just makes your point, you know, over and over again. Interesting. Interest, it's a great uh, podcast series to listen to. It's sort of, and I'm surprised it hasn't become a movie yet, but it probably will be. Well, let me just give you a little teaser then, Mike. I am coming out in January with a podcast series on <clears throat> the Enron trial. Wow. By where my uh, guest is, the former Houston Chronicle, Chronicle business columnist who covered the entire trial. Terrific. So I know a lot of people have focused on uh, 20 years, Sharon Watkins, and sort of everything from that angle, but... Uh, I wanted to focus on the trial because we're both trial geeks, and uh, it was a great trial, and it kind of put a cap on one of, the, I think, the Department of Justice's finest hours <clears throat> with the Enron Task Force. So uh, I've got that coming out uh, next month, so stay tuned for that. Terrific. Terrific. That'll be great. This is Tom Fox again. I would urge you to check out Karen Woody's new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network where with students from her insider trading class, she explores the history of insider trading. It's a unique format for a podcast with Karen interviewing her students, but her students are great, very knowledgeable, and I know you will enjoy it. Once again, it's Classroom Insider, and it appears on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, which is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.